today we'll be reading from Psalm 62. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Salah. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rest my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock. My refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. But no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken... Twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that you, O Lord, belong steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. That's our Lord's word for us today. You may be seated. Good morning. Good morning. Mm-hmm. So this summer we have been in the Psalms. And we've been taking a look at God as our refuge. And as you guys know, it's been somewhat heavy, or very heavy. And this week's the conclusion of that series. And there's going to be some heaviness, but there's going to be a lot of hope. And uh, I really think a lot of encouragement for our hearts this morning. And so as we bring this series to a close, I just want to pray that the Holy Spirit would just really open our hearts to whatever it is that he wants to do in us this morning. And I know I certainly uh, need his help. And so we're going to pray for all those things before we get started. Would you pray with me? Uh, God, I really love you. And the people in this room love you. And we need to hear from you this morning. Uh, Your word is the true encouragement for our hearts and our lives. And apart from you, we have no good thing. And so we just come to you this morning. I pray, Holy Spirit, for your help that you would make me small so that you would become great. Um, That you would speak through me because you know, you know each specific situation, each life, each, each wrongdoing in the past and in the present and in the future. You know the, the pace of our lives and the, and the good and the bad and, and because you know us so intimately, you can speak to us and convict us and encourage us in a way that no one else can. And so we come to the God of life and we ask for that this morning. And we believe that you can and we ask that you would. Search us, O oh God, and know our hearts. 
test us and know our anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. We ask these things in your name. Amen. So this morning, before we dive into Psalm 62, now we're going to again look at God as our refuge, and we're going to explore that through three specific questions this morning. But before we do that, I really want to establish two facets of the context of Psalm 62 that I think are pretty critical for us to know before we dive into the text. So the first part of the context that I want to speak to this morning in Psalm 62 is the reality of what's going on in David's life. So as best as theologians and historians can discern, David was in a really difficult season, and you, you hear that coming out in Psalm 62. I mean, that's not a, not a mystery. But when we look to the parallel in Scripture of what's going on when this psalm was written, we're taken to 2 Samuel chapters 15 through 18. And, and you don't have to turn there now. But I do want to summarize for you what's going on because uh, you will find yourself in good company this morning if you've been through difficulty because David's in it in this season. Uh, he is going through some pretty heavy betrayal and rejection from his son Absalom. Absalom had been working for quite some time to overthrow his father as king. And it gets to the point where it's so bad that David encourages uh, his advisors and the people that are following him to flee Jerusalem. And so he goes on this journey into the wilderness, and these chapters in the second Samuel give an account of that. And it talks about David just weeping. He's just weeping over the brokenness that's taking place in his relationship with his son. And he gets cursed along the way, and rocks are thrown at him, and he's weary because he's been walking. And you can just see, uh, when you look at Second Samuel, just the heaviness that's on him. And it finally gets to the point where Absalom decides that he's going to go to war with his dad. And so uh, you guys know that the betrayal from people that you love, even if they don't love you back, is some of the worst kind of pain. That's the kind of pain in which David writes this psalm. The second element of the context that I think we have to recognize this morning is that there's a framework that's often present in the psalms and clearly present in Psalm 62. And the framework is this, is that there's two realities that often take place in the psalms. There's this temporal or horizontal reality of our lives, our day-to-day, -day, what's going on, the things that we're experiencing. And then there's this vertical or transcendent or eternal reality that points us to God. And you guys are going to see this play itself out in Psalm 62. And so den without denying the pain of the earthly dimension... In this psalm, the people of God are to live joyfully and dependently on the person and promises standing behind the heavenly or eternal dimension. And so it's with the incredible pain of this horizontal reality and this very hopeful promise of this eternal reality that we then enter into this psalm. And so with that, 
There's three questions that I want to take a look at this morning to explore God as our refuge in Psalm 62. And the first question is this, is who is the source of our refuge? Who is the source of our refuge? Secondly, how do we engage with the source of our refuge? And thirdly, what do we do with the wrongdoing that we cannot make right? What do we do with the wrongdoing that we cannot make right? And so to explore this first question, who is the source of our refuge? It's, it's not a trick question. It's not a hidden question. David comes right out of the gate. We're going to look at verse 1 together. He says, for God alone, and I'll encourage you, if you don't have your Bibles in front of you, have them open or have your phone open because we're going to be in and through this text. And I want you guys to see uh, what's going on here. Verse 1, for God alone. And David here is trying to center us that you cannot go to any other source for your refuge other than God, or you're going to be disappointed, and it's not going to uphold the difficulties of this world. And he repeats that throughout the Psalms. He says, throughout this Psalm, he says again in verse 2, he alone is my rock. In verse 5, he says, for God alone. In verse 6, he says, he only is my rock. And David repeats himself a lot, but it's good that he does because we need to hear it. And cognitively, I think we often know if you've grown up in church for any length of time, or even if you're a newer Christian, this concept of God as our refuge is not a new concept. But when you start to talk about the pragmatics of living out your faith as God as our refuge, that's where the difficulty comes in. David moves on to verse 2, and he says... He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. And he uses all of these adjectives to start to describe who God is to us as our source of refuge. The reality is, is that a refuge only remains a safe place if it's stronger than the thing attacking it. A refuge only remains a safe place as long as it's stronger than the thing that's attacking it. And so what comes to mind uh, as, I, as I was processing this thought, as I was working on my sermon this week, is a scene from one of my favorite movies. If you've heard me preach before, I've probably given an example from this, Lord of the Rings. Okay? I grew up with three brothers, and it's just in my blood. And there's so many good sermon illustrations, so I have to share this. <laughs> so there's this scene, and I'll, for those of you who haven't seen it, I'm going to do my best to put you in the scene. There's a scene in the second movie where Gandalf, the white wise wizard, is standing in a room with advisors and King Theoden, who is the king of the people of Rohan. And... Gandalf looks at the king and he says, Saruman's army is coming to attack you and you need to ride out and meet him in battle. And King Theoden responds and he says, I know what you want from me. I know that you want this, but I'm not going to, to subject my people to warfare. And Aragorn, one of the other key leaders in the movie, looks over at King Theoden and he says, war is upon you whether you want it or not. And King Theoden says, who's king, me or you? And so Gandalf looks to King Theoden and he says, okay, king, what say you? 
and King Theoden says, we're going to go to Helm's Deep, which is this fortress that's built into a mountain. And it's been this repeated place of refuge for the people of Rohan. It's got these massive stone walls, and it's built into the mountain. And the walls up until this point have not been able to be penetrated. And so King Theoden, King Theoden says, this is where we're going to go, and this is where we're going to be safe. And so Gandalf and Aragorn leave the room, and Gandalf, in the way that he does, he starts mouthing off, and he says, this is not a good decision. He said he thinks he's bringing his people to a place of safety, but he's bringing his people into a trap. And if the king won't fight for his people, who's going to fight? And what Gandalf knew that King Theoden wanted to ignore is that the weaponry and the sheer amount of the army this time was something more developed and more advanced than it had ever been. And that if they went to battle at Helm's Deep, the fortress was not going to hold. And so this morning, if you put your hope, if you put the seat of your heart in anything other than God, it will not hold. And David knew this. And so he wrote about it. So if you look with me in verse 9, he said, those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. And David here is really describing two areas where we're often tempted to put our trust. He first talks about status. He says, if you're of low status or high status, societal status, job status, financial status, whatever it may be, that is fleeting. He said, in, in the balances it goes up, which, mean, which means there's no grounding for that. It's not going to carry any sort of weight. And then he goes on in verse 10 to say, don't put your hope in money, whether you accumulate that through deceptive means like extortion or robbery, or you accumulate that through, f through okay means, don't set your heart on it. And he uses similar verbiage here when he says, don't set your heart on it, as he does in verse 1 where he says, my soul waits in silence. And I'm going to explain what that means as we explore the next question. But David knew that our heart is tempted to go to lesser things. I was describing to my huddle a particular situation uh, that I was facing. I was struggling with a sin issue. And I knew going into the situation that I was going to be struggling with this sin issue. I got in the situation, and I struggled. I left the situation, and I struggled. And on the way home, it was this it was a spiritual battle of am I going to give my affections and my heart to this thing? And I described it to my head in this way. It was like an octopus with its tentacles starting to move and strangle my heart. I mean, it was that sort of en enticing, ensnaring type of reality. And that's what David's talking about here. He says, do not set your heart on anything other than God. Okay, Olivia, that makes sense to me. Okay. We've been talking about that for six weeks, right? 
But here's the application of that question. How do we know where we place our refuge? Well, I think a question that we can ask ourselves to, to start to explore that reality in our lives is what do you do when you're alone? What do you do when you're alone? In a season of difficulty, when life is hard, no one is looking, nobody's around, where do your thoughts go? Do you turn to your finances to help you feel better? Do you get online and shop? I'm telling you what, these Amazon vans, contents may contain happiness. They write that because we live that, right? We get online and we shop and we feel this instant chemical gratification of, ooh, that felt good. <laughs> they know that. What do you do when you're alone? Do you lust? Do you distract yourself? Do you go to other people instead of going to God? What do you do when you're alone? Because as you'll know, if you've watched Lord of the Rings, what ends up happening is what Gandalf says will happen. You fast forward later in the movie, and all the troops, King Theoden's army, are lined up on these walls. And they're in a ravine, so there's this massive field in front of them. Imagine that, that I'm a soldier standing on the wall, and in front of me in this aisle here is coming this army. And you can hear it booming in the mountains. You can hear it booming the steps of the advancing army. And you see the fear because they know, they know that the method that they chose for their, for their security was not the right way. Do you turn to God as your refuge? And so you may be saying this morning, Olivia, like I'm not in a really painful season of my life. I'm just kind of going about. Things are somewhat calm right now. Life, you know, it has its challenges with the pace and the things that we try to manage and our responsibilities, but there's no major crisis in my life right now. I think this sermon is still for you because although the text doesn't explicitly say it, when we look at the whole of scripture, we know that this is true, that God puts himself as a refuge in our life and a weekly rhythm through the Sabbath. And he has created a day for us to commune with him and to rest with him. I heard a pastor describe it in this way, of marinating in the beauty of God. And if you're doing the Sabbath right, you should be giddy about it. Like, okay, Sunday or whenever it is that you, that you do the Sabbath, in anticipation of that, you should be like, okay, Sunday is coming, right? That is a rhythm in our life to keep us going. Just in the regular day-to-day. -day. Last week, in particular, I needed the Sabbath. I just, I could feel it. It was getting to Sunday, and I'm like, okay, I gotta get, I gotta get there. And we celebrate our Sabbath. I celebrate, yeah, I guess that's the right word. We we celebrate, we enjoy our Sabbath. We start Saturday evening, and we go till Sunday evening. And um, so I get to church on Sunday morning, 
And you know what? You know what's so good about worship on Sunday morning? Is I spend so much time thinking about myself during the week. And it's not all bad. I'm thinking about the people in my life that I love and my responsibilities and things that I'm trying, trying to steward and my problems and, you know, and how can I be more faithful and all these things, right? But then when we get here on a Sunday morning, and it's not the only time that this happens in our week, right? But this is the communal time where there's power from the people of God doing this together. And we sit and we just enjoy God. And we think about his goodness and we push praises to him. And we think about the gospel and the implications of a, for our lives. And listen, I've probably said this before and I'm going to say it again. But the gospel should never get old for us. It is the best news. It is our lifeline. Amen. The fact that we were completely dead in our sin and we could do nothing to help us and God sent his son for us is the best news that you will ever have. And every Sunday morning we get to come and we get to think about that together and spend time marinating in the goodness of God. That is a gift. That is not something we have to do. That is not a burden. That is a gift to help us in the day to day of our life. And then we get to go home from here and you get to do the things that bring you life. So last week, I looked at a travel blog and I thought about all the beautiful places in Europe. <laughs> and I took a nap. And then we got smoothies and we had good food. And then we, we had a bonfire and the kids were playing and we were sitting and it was just good. That is the Sabbath. Yeah. Do things that allow you to commune with your heavenly Father, that write and posture your heart before him, and then just sit in his beauty and whatever that looks like for you. Some of you last week, it was a baseball game. That wouldn't have been my thing. <laughs> but for some of you, it's a baseball game. Some of you, it's just sitting on the couch. Or some of you, it's taking a walk in nature. Those things in and of themselves are not things, right? But David's saying just don't set your heart on them, which is why we start our Sabbath with putting ourselves in right position before God. So that when we go to enjoy those things, we know that they are not ultimate, but they're a gift from God. Who's the source of your refuge? Second question. How do we engage with the source of our refuge? I think there's two directives that David gives us here. And I want to look at the first one in verse 5 through 8. He says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock. My refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O oh people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. And so the first directive that David gives us here is he says, wait in silence. And I think this has a connotation in our church culture and probably with in greater culture that sometimes makes us a little uneasy. I think on, on one side, we think about waiting in silence as this really awkward, weird, we're just sitting alone and it's just, there's nothing going on, and we're just kind of, hmm, what's happening? And then there's this other kind of new age connotation that we're going to have this maybe out-of-body experience, or it's going to be meditative the whole time, and we're, we're trying to get to some higher place. 
But I think if we look at what David's actually saying is it's not a weird thing. It's a spiritual discipline that should be a practice of our life. And so when we look to the soul waiting in silence, the Hebrew word for soul is nefesh. And it's the seat of our appetites, our emotions, and our passions. The seat of our appetite, our emotions, and our passions. And it's the activity of our mind, our will, and our character. So this, this word soul here has this really dual reality of it's your inner it's your inner emotion and desire that then translates into and impacts your mind that affects your will and your habitual action, which is your character. Let me slow that down because that's a lot. Okay. Nefesh, our soul. It's our inward seat of our emotions. It's our longings. It's our desires that translate into the activity of our mind, which then affects our will, our desire to do things, which affects our actions and ultimately our character. And so he says, when our soul waits in silence, he's talking about both a quiet waiting and an active trust. The quiet waiting being in that we are not engaging and trying to solve things on our own. So when you're alone with your thoughts um, and you're in a season of particular difficulty, that you're not trying to figure that all out on your own. You're not seeing how your finances are going to add up and solve the problem for you. You don't live in a place of worry and fear and anxiety, but you subject the desires of your heart and you put them under the authority of God, and you, you rest in the fact that he is sovereign, means he's all-powerful, and he is good. And then the activity is also a spiritual discipline, and that we subject and submit ourselves to trusting in God, and that's active, right? Oftentimes we can say, trust in God, trust in God, trust in God. Well, what does that mean? Well, when things start to crumble around you, you're entering into spiritual warfare to trust God. And I know spiritual warfare has a heavy connotation, but let me just break that down first for a second. Satan is real, and he knows you very well. And he is looking to have the affections of your heart and the affections of your heart want to go to things that you can be in control of. And so when we talk about an act of trust, we say, okay, God, I don't understand this, and I don't really know what's going to happen, but I'm going to trust that you are good regardless of the outcome. So you say this morning, Olivia, what are we trusting in? The Old Testament meaning of salvation here when when David says I'm going to rest my salvation on God I'm going to trust him for our salvation it's both a deliverance of physical and spiritual deliverance from whatever danger that it is and that doesn't mean and this is where we get into theological conundrums in our relationship with the Lord is we plot out what the outcome should be and then when, if that doesn't happen, and we experience an incredible amount of pain, we get in all this sort of difficulty with God 
and we start to question his character. Trusting him doesn't mean we trust him for the outcome that we want, but that we submit to him and we say, whatever the outcome, I trust that you are still good. It's a trust in his character. And David says he puts a qualifier to this. He says in verse 8, and know that he goes, in verse 8, he switches from an internal reflection to a corporate instruction because he says, O people. He says, trust in him at all times, O people. And so he's telling here the people of God, he's gone from this introspective process in the first six or seven verses to now this corporate instruction of at all times, even when you don't know what's going to happen, trust in him. I had a situation about a year ago. It was one of those situations that, um, I, I don't really know how to describe it exactly. It was um, a family member who, was in the process of trying to commit suicide. And I happened to be on the phone with this person. And he was talking for a while, and then at one point he went unconscious. And I didn't know if he was alive or not. And I, I did the only thing I knew how to do. And I just said, Jesus save him, Jesus save him, Jesus save him, Jesus save him. And for 20 minutes, that's just what I said. And I didn't know. I begged the Lord to save him, but I didn't know if he would. And then all those thought processes play out of, if he doesn't make it, what's going to happen? Trusting in God in that moment didn't mean that I knew with certainty that my family member was going to be saved. Trusting in God in that moment meant I believed that he could do it. I believed that he was all-powerful. And it was a submission that you are God and I am not, and I don't know what's going on here. And if it doesn't turn out the way that you want, I want, you are still good. Those are the prayers of God's people. Those are the kind of prayers we have to have and I often ask myself, Olivia, if the thing that's most important to you in this world, which is my husband and my kids, if God took them, can I still say that my God is good? That's when we know the testing of our faith. It's when the things that we hold on to and love, we have to submit to God. The second thing that David tells us in verse 8 is he says, pour out your heart before God. And the Hebrew word for pour out here is shafak. And it means to dump, gush, shed. The process of unburdening yourself from intolerable pain, grief, or agony. Here's the awesome thing about our God, is he says for us to trust him, but he knows that we're going to have a hard time doing it, and so he says you've got to pour out. We just need to have these honest conversations with you and me, not where we're irreverent to God. We are still reverent and that we recognize 
who he is and who we are, but we have this honest conversation with him. We see this play itself out in scripture in 1 Samuel when Hannah is just in grief for a child that she wants that she doesn't have. And she's being mocked by another woman because she can't produce a child. And so she's experiencing ridicule and pain and a desire that's unmet. And she's in the temple and Eli looks at her and he says, there's this woman there and she's speaking, but no words are coming out. I think she's drunk. And he says, how long will you go on being drunk? And Hannah responds, she says, but Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before God. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. There is a place for you. God gives you permission to unpack yourself before him. And some of you just haven't done that with your pain. And you need to get alone with God in whatever way you do that best. And you just need to let it out. I had this a couple weeks ago. I was experiencing something that I've experienced similar in the past, and it was causing me pain. And so I got in the car by myself, and I was on my way to Amish country. That's my place uh, when I need to uh, get alone with God. And um, I just said to God, I said, you know, I feel like you give me your leftovers. You give your best attention to other people that are more worthy or better fit. I don't know. And I just feel like I get what the leftover attention. And he said to me, not in an audible voice, but in my mind, he said, Olivia, what else do I have to do to show you that you are worthwhile and that I love you? I gave my son for you. And I had two reactions. I was silenced, which is why we have to go to God and pour out because he, in his lovingly, fatherly, corrective way, he reorients our hearts to truth and it just stops us. And then I just wept. And I just like, I just soaked in the fact that God loves me. Man, he loves me. Apart from anything I do. And I think sometimes, guys, I think sometimes in the difficulty of life that we forget that our relationship with the Lord is one that we are supposed to enjoy. Like we are supposed to enjoy him. And in that moment, I was just enjoying being loved on by God. Psalm 63 goes on to say at one point, David talks about his longing for God and he says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And I love food. So this verse just means a lot to me. And um, Justin and I were on a date a month or so ago and I wanted ice cream. And I had denied Cheesecake Factory Cheesecake to get this ice cream. So I had high expectations, okay? And we find ourselves in Chagrin Falls, and Jenny's is the only ice cream place there that we knew of. Now, I have an issue with Jenny's, or had an issue with Jenny's. I think their portion sizes are too small. And 
I think that their flavors are a little bit, what would you say? Bland. Well, I was going to say a little too like high up, like a little bit pretentious. I'm like, well, that flavor doesn't mean anything to me. But this was the ice cream store. So I get these, these really good smells coming off the street. We're walking on the sidewalk. I'm like, okay, we got to go in here. And I said, I'm going to beat their small sizes and I'm just going to get a waffle cone to make sure that I get as much as I want. And so, in true fashion for me, I asked the ice cream woman, I said, now what flavor do you recommend? And she said, I recommend the salted peanut butter. It's got chunks of chocolate in it, and it's wonderful. And I said, yes. Scoop me on some salted peanut butter. And I take a look at that code, and man, I am just having a euphoric experience. It was so good. And Justin and I take our ice cream cones down to the water, because we've got a river there. And I'm just eating my cone. And it's a good thing we've been married almost 10 years. Because if this was the first date, I'd just be embarrassing myself. Because I was just lost in my ice cream cone. And Justin was, he was a great date. But this was a really good ice cream moment. <laughs> and so, you know by the end of your ice cream cone that it starts to break apart. You got the drips. And then the cone starts to fall. I'm picking the cone up off the floor. I mean, the bits of the cone that are falling. And I'm eating them. And you know what? I'm not even embarrassed about it because it was just that good. <laughs> Listen, our relationship with the Lord, <laughs> bringing it back. When David says that our souls to be satisfied is with good food, when we just look at a, after a good burger or a good piece of cake and we're like, oh, that was good. Like that is how our relationship with the Lord is supposed to be. We're supposed to come away from our time with him and be, and saying to ourselves like, that is just good. He just satisfied my soul in a way that nothing else can. So when David says pour out, he means pour out and let the Lord minister to you in a way that nothing else can and no one else can. So my last question this morning is what do we do with the wrongdoing that we cannot make right? What do we do with the wrongdoing that we cannot make right? Because we know that David's in a really difficult season, and I don't, I don't want to make light this morning of your pain. So what I'm about to say, I say it with every measure of sensitivity and biblical conviction. Let's look together at verse 3. How long... Will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? David here is not asking God to answer how long. He's just communicating. This has gone on for a long period of time, and I'm in a lot of pain, and I don't know how much longer I can do this. How long? Verse 4, they only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. So there's some observations that we can take here from this description of David's pain. That there was an intention to harm physically and emotionally. It said they had a plan to thrust him down. There was intention there to harm. And some of you have experienced intentional harm. Some of you have experienced unintentional harm, but with the same effect. I think both are applicable here. 
But David was experiencing rejection from his own son and all the people that were following him. Not only was it intentional, but they took pleasure in it. They enjoyed it. And they were duplicitous. They blessed with their mouth, but inwardly they cursed. And a duplicitous person, they can do incredible destruction because they are not trustworthy. And this is the kind of treatment that David is experiencing here. And so I pause here for a moment because for some of you, you've experienced this type of pain. You can relate to this in some way. And sometimes when we've experienced something very painful, we have to put that in a closet because to even acknowledge it is too hard. And I recognize that there is a time and a place, especially when you've endured evil, to deal with that. But can I ask you this morning that if you've experienced some sort of wrongdoing, that you would open yourself up to healing from the Lord. Nobody can do that for you. And I recognize it may not be in this moment. That may be in a quiet time with the Lord at some point, maybe later today, later this week. But, but would you consider that the Lord cares deeply about what has been done to you? That when you are grieved, he is grieved? That when Christ was on the cross, he literally felt the evil that you felt. He felt that. And so in verse 11, which we're going to turn our attention to now, David is going to describe for us who God is. And as I just asked you to just, you know, would you consider opening up your heart to God in, in this area of pain? This is why we can do this, because of what David's about to tell us. Verse 11, once God has spoken, he only has to say it once, but sometimes we need to hear it multiple times. And twice I have heard this, the power belongs to God. And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. And so David here is describing two attributes of God. He's describing God's power. And what he means when he says that all power belongs to the Lord is it's, it's his, meaning that nothing is too hard for him. He possesses ultimate power and authority. And God's use of power is qualified by all of his other attributes, his mercy and his justice and his goodness. So he's never going to utilize his power or wield that in a way that will conflict with all of his other attributes. Some of you need to know that this morning because you've experienced power used against you in a harmful way, but that's not your God. That is not your God. He is safe and he's a stronghold for us. And he says in verse 12, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. And that's the second attribute that he draws our attention to. 
that his love is sacrificial, it's constant, it's reciprocal, and it's initiating. What would our relationships be like if we were more initiating? That's the kind of love that Jesus has for us in 1 John. In this love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to die for us. He took the first step, even when we did not want him. And so it is because of these attributes, coupled with all of the other attributes of God, that when David says, for you will render to a man according to his work as best as my study can do for me this week, being in the original languages, being in commentary, studying the word of God, this is what I've come to the conclusion that this verse is talking about. It's talking about the final judgment. We're going to go out with a, a serious note, but one that has incredible impact for our lives. The Hebrew word for render is shalom, and it means to make whole or good or make compensation. And so when we think about the final judgment, what's going to happen? It's going to be for believers and unbelievers. And it will be an evaluation of works, the things that we have done in secret, in private, in public. For unbelievers, it's going to be an evaluation that will entail degrees of punishment. And for believers, it's going to be an evaluation of both good things and bad things we have done, but it will result not in eternal condemnation because Romans says there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, but it will be based off of rewards. But here is the caution in this. Ecclesiastes 12.14 says, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. For some of you, you've experienced things in these private places, and nobody might know about it, or maybe just a few, and it was never made right. It wasn't rectified. And it's just this open wound, and you're, it's, what do I do with this? God is going to bring that into the light. Luke 12, 2 through 3, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, and here is the caution, church, be careful how you speak about one another. Because whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. Romans 14, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God and give an account for what we have done. We don't like to talk about this in the church. It makes people uncomfortable, but it's very biblical. And so we just have to acknowledge that the wrongdoing that you have experienced and the wrongdoing that we do to others will be brought into the light in the final judgment. And so, Olivia, well, what's the implication of that? I'm trying to get my head around that. The implication is this, that final judgment should satisfy our inward sense for justice in this world. Final judgment should satisfy our inward sense of a need for justice in this world. Please hear me. 
I am not saying that we should not seek justice as the Holy Spirit provides opportunity. I've been spending the better part of my professional and ministry life trying to bring that about. But we have to hold justice in light of a biblical worldview. And scripture says that ultimately, justice is his. Our culture will tell you to pursue justice at all costs. Church, we have to be a people that takes a look at culture's directives and we have to seat that down into scripture and say, what's different about this? What's the same? What's the discrepancies here? There will be things on this earth that will be redeemed. I believe that. We see that. That's part of the kingdom having come with Christ. But the kingdom is not fully here. And so while there's this temporal reality, there's also this very much eternal reality. And some things won't be made right until we get to heaven. And so for those of you who have experienced pain and you don't know what to do with it and it hasn't been right, and there's no apology, there's no acknowledgement of wrongdoing, hold that in light of eternity and trust that it grieves the heart of God and that he will make it right. Wayne Grudem, a theologian, kind of summarizes it in this way. This thought should keep us from harboring bitterness or resentment in our hearts for injustices we have suffered that have not been made right. This thought should keep us from harboring bitterness or resentment from those injustices that have not been made right. Some of you are holding on to this aspect of wrongdoing that's been done to you, and you just want it made right, and you're just in this place of pain and anger. And the people that have hurt you have moved on. Many of them aren't thinking about it. <laughs> they might not even know that it was wrong, and maybe they did. And they're moving on, and you know who's going to suffer if you live in a place of bitterness? You will suffer. It will be you. And so you got to get to a place before the Lord where you just pour out. God is just, and we can leave these situations in his hands because he is all-powerful, driven by steadfast love and his mercy, qualified by his mercy and his justice, and knowing that he will someday right all wrongs and give absolutely fair rewards and punishments. So this morning as we draw to a close, Justin, or Justin and Michael, would you guys come and just play? And Steve, can we hold off from communion for a minute? We're just going to take a few moments before the Lord. He tells us to wait before him. And I know this is uncomfortable, but God, he often works in the uncomfortable. And so if the Holy Spirit has prompted you in some way to explore this, one of these questions, I want to take a few moments just to do that now. So first... Is God the source of your refuge? In deep seasons of pain and in the day-to-day -day of your life, 
do you engage with God as your refuge? And maybe you know that God is your refuge, but the second question of engaging with him, maybe that's waiting before him in this act of trust, or it's just this pouring out. Have you done that with him about your pain? And thirdly, for those of you who've experienced pain and it hasn't been made right, can you rest in the eternal and deep spiritual truth that he will bring that into the light and he will render to a man according to his work? And that rendering, that doesn't absolve us of forgiveness. So for some of you that have experienced wrongdoing, God still commands us to forgive, even when there's not justice for that right now in this life. And so I'm gonna pray for us, and I'm just gonna give us a couple moments here to let the Holy Spirit, and I can't do this, this is, this is the Holy Spirit, to just, start to deal with us in some of these things and then I'll, I'll come back up to pray and, and, and Steve will lead us in communion but here's the prayer that I want to pray for you as you guys have a couple moments for this Hebrews 4.12 would you, would you close your eyes and would you I just want to pray this for us right now for the word of God is living and active It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of the soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God, would you open up our hearts and would the truth of the word of God reorient us and encourage us and convict us this morning, we pray.